If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, and I hope you do, let's turn together to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, perhaps one of the most familiar ones out of the book of James. And this morning we're calling our minds to the idea of prayer. And we understand as believers that prayer, or at least I hope we understand as believers, that prayer is one of the most vital aspects of our Christian life. But it is often one of the most neglected aspects of our Christian life. And here the, uh, the writer, James, calls out to us to understand how important it is for us as believers, uh, because he's going to address a few things that help us to understand that there's never an aspect of our life, there's never an aspect of our life where we do not need to be praying. James chapter 5, if you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and as if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You can be seated this morning. It was Matthew Henry who said, As Christians, we are taught to suit ourselves to the dispensations of providence. What he's saying here is that we understand that it is God who providentially works in every situation in our life. And so it would behoove us as Christians to understand that and then to know what it is that we need to do inside of each one of those variations of God's providence. All of us sitting in this room this morning have experienced times of joy, times of sorrow, times of happiness, times of sadness, times of celebration, and times of grief. We've all walked through each one of those seasons. And so James here is going to help us understand how it is that we live out the Christian life in the midst of these different times. And I want to point out really four, I'm not going to say different types of prayers, but four perspectives of prayer that James gives us here in this passage. And the first one is a personal prayer. Look with me at verse 13. He says, "'Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray.'" Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now, is anyone among you suffering? It's an interesting question that he would ask, right? Is anyone among you suffering? Now, I want to call your attention very first off to understand the context of this passage. Now, we understand that James has been writing here to these dispersed churches. Uh, They were persecuted and sent out into the regions and were fleeing persecution. And even as they had ended up in the places that they were, they were still experiencing more persecution. At the earlier part of chapter 5, he he writes to condemn the rich who would persecute those believers. But then there in verses 7 through 12, he also encourages them to strengthen them in the midst of persecution. So this is a troubled people. 
of people who have been troubled by persecution, by sorrow, by despair, as they are trying to live out their faith, but encountering persecution in the world. So we understand what James is writing about when he says, are you suffering? He says, then you must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he must sing praises. Now that suffering aspect from come from any source. It could come from hardship or discouragement that they were facing from persecution, but it also then could be the idea of being troubled or afflicted in our minds. Any one of us in this room who have experienced hardship and discouragement understand and know that it's not oftentimes just what we experience physically on the outside in the midst of discouragement, but really the hardest part of walking through those seasons is what happens on the inside of us. What happens spiritually and mentally as we try to walk through those different seasons of life. Now, we've, as we talked about just last week, we're not experiencing severe persecution in the United States at any moment. But I'd say that probably any one of us in this room at some point in our life have experienced some type of persecution for our faith. Whether it was a stand that we took with a family member about a sin issue or maybe a situation at work where we stood up for our faith and were either ridiculed or perhaps punished for that because of the stand that we took. We understand what it means to walk through this kind of discouragement and this kind of thing that would afflict our mind. Perhaps this morning you find yourself there. It's very easy for us as human beings to put on a front when we're walking through those times of suffering, those times of discouraging. People look at us and say, well, brother, how are you doing? It's like, oh, I'm doing okay. When on the inside, all we really want to say is, I'm terrible. I couldn't be worse. But sometimes we don't feel the liberty to say that. But James gives us the answer. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. I want you to notice there, it doesn't say, then he should pray. Because I think oftentimes that is our mindset. When, when we begin to walk through discouragement and we begin to walk through trial and hardship, our, our first thought often is not to go to prayer, but our first thought is often maybe to go to someone else. And that's not always necessarily a bad thing. But sometimes our thought is to just begin to sit down and have a pity party for ourselves. But James says, then, he says, if anyone among you suffering, then, this is the answer, he says, he must pray. And what is he praying for? What should we pray for in those times? Well, we pray for what we need. We pray for that support. We pray for that peace, for that encouragement. And we pray for the relief that God would send to us in those moments. Brothers and sisters, I want us to draw near to this this morning to understand how vital this is for us as believers. If we were asked in a survey, how important is prayer for the Christian, every Christian would say, oh, it's, it's vitally important. But do we actually believe that? Because saying that we believe something is not the same as actually believing it. We actually believe something when we do what we are commanded to do, when we demonstrate that our lives are focused and centered upon that thing. He says he must pray. John Gill said, times of afflictions are these times for prayers when there is especially greater need of them. And we understand that. We're driven to pray in such a way that God would bring to us and give us those things that we need in that time. 
Matthew Henry pointed out that to this end, God sends afflictions, that we may be engaged to seek him early and that those that other times have neglected him may be brought to pursue after him. Nothing is wasted in our lives. We can often look at a situation and think, well, why me? Why now? Is this a pointless thing in my life? Nothing happens in our life that is pointless. Nothing happens in our life that is a wasted moment. Even in the deepest, darkest valleys we will walk through, God is working out His purposes and His plans in our lives. And sometimes He gives us those moments in order to push us to a further dependence upon Him. You know, we oftentimes pray for lost ones, lost loved ones, that they would reach the end of the rope, that they would reach the bottom of the, uh, of the barrel, as, as so it would say, in order that they have nowhere else to go but to Christ. And sometimes, even us as believers, we need to learn that same lesson. We need to get to the bottom of ourselves in order that we learn that we have no one else to cling to but Christ. Because as believers, sometimes we can still be tempted to trust in our own pride, to trust in our own power, to trust in our own ability. Especially the longer we've been a Christian and the more we've studied God's Word, we can get to this place where we think that we know it all. All of us in this room who are adults were at one time teenagers. And you know, the amazing thing about teenagers is they have a greater intellect than almost any other age of person in existence, or at least they think they do, right? If you think back when you were 13, 14 years old, you thought you knew everything there was to know about the world. You thought you knew it more than your parents. And then you get older and you graduate and you have kids of your own and you realize how very little you knew when you were a teenager. And the longer we're Christians, the more we have to realize this, that the more we study God's Word, the more we realize our dependence upon Christ is necessary, that we can't trust in our own strength and our own ability. So James says, if anyone is afflicted, if anyone is suffering, then he must pray. This should be our first line of defense. God has opened up and made a way for us in the midst of difficulty and trial to have a sure line of help. But do we take advantage of it? You know, there's an old hymn that says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. In the latter part of that verse says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Take it to Him. Pray. Your first response, take it to the Lord in prayer. But James also says, is anyone cheerful? Then he must sing praises. Is anyone cheerful? Then he must sing praises. This is talking about having a a happy heart in, in prosperous circumstances. Because not only as believers will we walk through difficult trials and tribulations, but there will be times of celebration. There will be times where we're not in the valley, but we're on the mountaintop. And the same temptation to forget to pray when we're in the valley can be the same temptation to forget to praise God when we're on the mountaintop. When everything's going well, we can tend to look around and say, oh, well, I must be doing pretty good for myself. 
I must have read my Bible enough this week or prayed enough or, or God's really happy and pleased with me. And, and, and we begin to think, again, that it's all about ourselves. And we're so content in the hard work that we've done and the ability that we put forth that we forget that what we experience in times of joy is the same blessing and providence of God that we experience in times of trial. And if we are to pray in times of difficulty to demonstrate our dependence upon God, we are to praise in times of prosperity, again, in order to demonstrate our dependence upon God. We sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as the Scripture lays out. And this is not only in a public setting, but also in a private setting. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, make it a habit of singing to God as part of your quiet time. Make it a habit of singing to God as part of your personal worship. Don't just pray, but sing. There's something about singing that causes something to happen on the inside of us. It, it brings us from a place of, of just being more withdrawn in something to, to, to explaining and, and, and exuding those things that are sometimes that we don't even feel necessarily yet, but we verbalize it through song. That's why when I look around and, and sometimes I see people in, in places that I've been, I've been preaching before. I remember one time very vividly preaching in a church many years ago and and uh, so I was up on the platform, and I'm looking out as the, as the congregation is being led in song, and, and you look around the room, and you, and you see some people that are just standing there, and they're not singing. Now, I don't know why they weren't singing, but I do know this, they should be singing. People say, well, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like singing. You don't know what's going on. I understand. I know. But it's when we don't feel like singing that we need to sing all the more, that we need to open our mouths and say what great hymn writers of the past will say for us on our behalf to help us and to draw us nearer to Him. So if we are sorrowful, we pray. If we are cheerful, we sing praises. There are times when God is doing so much wonderful things in our lives, and we must remember to give Him praise and honor and glory in the midst of it. Affliction calls for prayer and joy calls for singing. What this helps us to understand is what Calvin said, that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Think about that. There is no time in your life when God is not standing there saying, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In times of sorrow and times of joy, God is inviting us to come to him in prayer. Now, what does this mean for us? I want us to really consider this fact of how wonderful prayer is and what a blessing that God has given to us as believers. If you were to go back in the Old Testament and to tell some of the Old Testament saints, you can have a direct access to God in prayer. They would have been like, what do you mean? I mean, we don't have to go to the high priest? We can, we can go directly to God. They would have been so excited to know this and to understand this that we don't have to go to a priest or to a pope. We can go directly to the throne of grace through what Christ has done on our behalf. We have access to the God of all the universe. You might be able to pick up the phone and call the White House 
and have a direct connection with the president. But you know what? That pales in comparison with the power that you have, not by picking up the phone, but just by going to the Lord in prayer. Everything that you need for each situation of life is found in prayer and in praise. It's a necessary and appropriate thing for all the seasons of our lives. And brothers and sisters, we must make it central for us. So this is a personal thing. It's a personal prayer because he's talking about what we do in the midst of suffering. He says, are you suffering? Then you must pray. Are you cheerful? Then you're to sing praises. But the second perspective of prayer that I want you to see here is a public prayer in verses 14 and 15. He says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they're to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And as he have committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, it's interesting. I will be one to freely admit that I was somewhat taken aback as I studied this verse this week. Because we always hear this verse, and and this verse is oftentimes used in, in reference of just any generic thing of anyone being sick who's being prayed for. Now, let me be clear here. The Lord does heal those who are physically sick. We, we see that from the Scripture. But it's interesting that many commentators look at this phrase and look at this word, and you look at the original language that James uses here and then set it in the context of what he's talking about here and believe that James is not so much, again, speaking here about physical illness as he is emphasizing what he has already spoken about in verse 13. That he's talking about those times of of spiritual and mental anguish and sadness and sorrow and not physical illness so much. Now, physical illness can sometimes be a result of those things. In fact, this word that James James uses here in verse 14, about half the times that it's used in the New Testament, it's used in reference to physical illness, and about half the times it's used to spiritual or physical downtroddenness or sorrow. And all but three times when it's used in the epistles, it's used again for that idea of being mentally, physically, spiritually exhausted in the midst of trial and tribulation. And I think as we look at the context of what James is talking about here, that seems to make the most sense of what he's trying to describe here. Because he then talks about one who is in sins, that their sins will be forgiven them. And then in verse 16, he goes on to confess your sins one to another. And the idea of doing away with those things that sometimes can cause us to be spiritually distraught, spiritually downtrodden. He says, is anyone among you sick? Are you experiencing the weariness that this world brings upon you? Does your faith feel weak? Does your conscience feel downtrodden? Because we do not escape the trials of this life. We emphasize the same thing that we emphasized in the previous verse, that as believers, we are going to experience times of difficulty and times of persecution. We're going to experience those mornings where we wake up And things just don't feel right on the inside. And we struggle. We say, Lord, what's going on? Why am I feeling this way? And we can't pinpoint it to one particular thing or the other sometimes. But James is reemphasizing this. He says, are you sick? Is Is it a sickness that you've prayed about, a suffering, a downtroddenness that you've prayed about, 
and yet still nothing has happened, he says, then, he says, you must call for the elders of the church. He's talking about those who are the officers in the church, the pastors of the church, those who have been trusted with the spiritual care of the congregation. He says, call for them. I want you to emphasize and note that word there. He must call for the elders of the church. I love what William Barclay said about this. He says, there is no promise here that the elders shall have mysterious powers of discovering that any member of the flock is ill when nobody, not even the sick person, tells them. As a pastor, let me tell you this morning, the only way that we know that you need prayer is if you call us. Text us, email us, whatever you want to do, whatever your preference is. But when Wes and I wake up in the morning, we we don't have a letter there on the bedside table from the Lord that says, Sister so-and-so is sick. Brother so-and-so is discouraged. The only way that we know is if you tell us. And our commitment to you this morning is that we will do what the book of Acts says. He says, we, the scripture says, as they were dividing up amongst and, and establishing the, the, the deacons there, the apostle says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Pastor Wes and I will commit to do these things for you. We committed to the ministry of the word and we will commit ourselves to prayer. And we would love to pray for you in the situation that you're in. But we have to know. You have to tell us. And let me just, as a, as a side note this morning, don't depend on someone else to tell us on your behalf. Now, I'm not saying that that person would maliciously do that, but we're all human, right? And I've had a situation where I didn't find out about someone who was sick, and I said, well, you know, why didn't you let me know? It's like, well, I told somebody to tell you. And again, I don't think they did it maliciously. They just let it slip their mind. But just call us, tell us. Because this is such a joyous part of what it means to be a pastor, is that we can pray for those who are sick. He says that they should call for the elders of the church and that they would pray over them. What are they praying for? They're praying for the recovery of their strength, praying for the recovery of their health, praying for the recovery of those things that they're walking through, praying for the alleviation of the trial and the tribulation. And James says that they were to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of different perspectives here on what was happening here as they were anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. In the time in which James was writing, oil was used in a very medicinal way to treat wounds. They would rub oil on on places on the body as as a way to to treat those wounds and bring healing to them. And many people believe that this is why James uses this, because he's speaking about the idea of the prayer being the medicinal, prayer being the medicine for the help of those spiritual concerns, and it's being demonstrated through this physical aspect of putting oil on the person. As if they were putting oil on a physical wound, they're putting oil on this spiritual wound to bring this restoration back to them. Now, I want to point out here, but not that very many of us in this room may know what this is, but the Roman Catholic Church has a, a rite or a ritual that they follow called extreme unction. And it's where when someone who is dying, they will come to them and they will put oil upon them. And they believe that this oil and this process has a power for that person. Now, we understand that this is not what James is talking about here. And the biggest reason why is because James says that the purpose of this, this purpose of prayer by the elders and this person, purpose of anointing with oil, so is that this person would be restored. 
that this person would be healed, that this person would be brought back to health. Whereas in the Roman Catholic rite of extreme unction, it's expected that this person is being anointed with oil so that they would be, that they are going to die. So we understand the separation here, that this is not talking about what the Roman Catholic Church would proclaim it to be. But James says in the midst of this prayer, and we said it's a public prayer because you've called for the elders, you've made the notice public, you've told someone about it, you've told the elders that they would come and pray for you. And he says the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Now, what is a prayer that is offered in faith? What is a prayer that is proceeding from faith? It's a prayer that believes that God will do what he's promised he's going to do. It's a prayer that believes in the truth of what God's word has said. He says, if you call on me, I will hear you. Ask me and I will give it to you. It's a prayer that's given in faith. It's a prayer that is offered by the elders, but it's also a prayer that is joined in with in faith by the sick person. There are two necessary components here. The elders are praying in faith. But that person is praying alongside of them, believing in faith that God will do what he said he's going to do. That's not the elders here that have the power. There's nothing about the elders here that is more powerful than anything else. It is God who is doing the work in the midst of this person's life. He is just using the elders as this means by which this prayer is being given. It is a confident prayer. Brothers and sisters, we are to pray confidently and expectantly when it comes to our prayer life. I know I have often been guilty of praying cheap prayers because I was afraid to pray confidently for about God to do something in a situation. We pray, Lord, we pray for this person that your will would be done. Now, there's nothing, in a sense, wrong with that prayer. But oftentimes, what we, why we pray that is because in our minds, we're like, well, we should pray for God to heal this person, but what if this person gets sicker and dies? What is that person, what's that person's family going to think about me? Right? What are they going to think about my prayer life? If I prayed and said, God, heal this person, bring healing to them, touch them, bring them out of this season, bring them out of this depression, bring them out of this discouragement, and then things get worse, that's going to look bad on me. And so we're tempted to pray cheap prayers. And we don't pray confidently, we don't pray expectantly, we don't pray in faith. He says that the one who prays in faith, he says that God will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, we understand that this is not each and every time. That every time someone who is discouraged, someone who is sick, someone who is weary, someone who is downtrodden, that not every single time is the Lord going to bring a full restoration because there are times where God allows people to walk through seasons of, of these things for longer periods of time. But that doesn't mean that we still shouldn't pray expectantly and confidently for the Lord to do that. In fact, one commentator says that in these moments that we should pray, God, if it be most for thy glory and the eternal good of this person's soul, let them be restored. If otherwise, pardon them, purify them, and take them to thy glory. 
We pray expectantly. We pray believing. We pray in faith. And then what God does is up to him. But let us pray confident prayers and not cheap prayers. He says, if anyone has committed sins, it shall be forgiven him. Now, this is not a question of if someone has committed a sin, for we know that everyone has sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But James is pointing out the fact that we see in Scripture that sometimes, not all the times, let me, let me be clear on this, but sometimes the discouragement, the sickness, the weariness that we feel in our lives results from the sin in our lives. There are times when we have allowed sin to enter in unrepentantly, We've done something, and that has caused us to be away from the Lord. And the Scripture tells us that God chastises them who He loves. And so God will bring things upon us in order to draw us back to Him and to discipline us to turn away from those things in our life. And what a beautiful promise it says here that as we pray and as we are recognizing this fact, James is assuming here that if one is drawing near for the elders to pray for him and drawing near to the Lord, that he's going to recognize the fact of this sinful place in his life, that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal that to him, he says, and those sins will be forgiven him. Forgiveness is sought and then forgiveness is given. Trust in the Lord's work. He says, call the elders, have them come to you, pray for you, that you may be healed. So that was a public prayer. Thirdly, I want you to notice a private prayer. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to this this morning. Verse 16, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Confess your sins one to another. How often do we do this? Now, James here is not talking about the idea of calling up your friend and, and confessing every single sin that you've committed in the day previous. He's not speaking to the idea of, of going to a, a, a pope or to the, to the priest and confessing sin in order to uh, receive forgiveness or penance from that priest. But what he is talking about, the sins that we commit against one another. He says, confess those sins to each other. Because confession of sin humbles the soul. It causes us to this place that we are humble before one another to confess, brother or sister, I think I offended you. Or brother or sister, you, you offended me. We need to talk through these things. He says, confess your sins one for another. Why does he say to do this? He says, confess your sins one to another. And then what? Pray for one another so that you may be healed. So he's talking about those who are walking through this seasons of discouragement, of trial and tribulation. He says, not only should you pray yourself, not only should you sing praises, not only should you call for the elders. He said, then he said, you should confess these things one to another and then pray for one another. Now, verse 14 and 15, I told you the commitment that we as elders make to you as the church to pray for you and to pray for you in those situations that you let us know about. But here in verse 16, what we find out is the promise that we must make to one another. 
that we will pray for one another. Because prayer is the best thing that we can do for each other. How can we best encourage and support each other in the faith? By praying for each other. By spending time. Not just saying, Father, bless the members at Barberville. But by spending time praying specifically for one another. I keep in my, in my bag over there in, in my office, I have one of the church directories. And so I'll pull it out and I'll go through and I'll pray by name down the list. And I don't say that this morning to brag on myself. I say it because I want to encourage you to do the same. If you don't have a copy of the directory, we'll get you one, but put it inside your Bible, put it inside your prayer notebook and pull it out. And each day pray for one family, for two families. And what you're going to find is it draws you into closer intimacy with the body of Christ. Because every single day you're going before the throne of grace with somebody that you know and you can pray about situations for them. Brothers and sisters, ask each other, how can I be praying for you this week? And write it down, write it there in the directory. I'm praying for them about this particular thing. And what a blessing it is as we pray for one another. The beautiful thing about praying for the body of Christ and praying for one another is that if we pray enough for someone, we can't be upset at them because the Holy Spirit softens our heart. The Holy Spirit brings us to this place. Matthew Henry said in this time of prayer that we should also share our particular weaknesses and infirmities to one another that we may find the help that we need. There's nothing more encouraging as a believer to know that someone is praying for you on your behalf. When you're walking through a difficult season, when things are not going your way, when you're sick, when you're troubled, when you're discouraged, to know that you can reach out to someone and say, hey, I'm walking through this, would you pray for me? And to know that when they say yes, that that, they really mean it. They're not just saying yes in the moment, but they really mean that they're going to pray for you and to know that they're lifting you up before the throne of grace in order that you might walk through this situation, that you may be healed, that you may be encouraged, that you may be strengthened. He says, confess your sins, pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. Oftentimes we are so hesitant to share our weaknesses with one another, to share our struggles and why, again, it goes back to the idea of pride. Well, I'm a, I'm a deacon. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm a pastor. I'm a longtime church member. If I tell somebody that I'm struggling with this, what are they going to think about me? If I tell somebody that I'm struggling with this, they're going to think less of me. May it never be so. And if you're tempted to think less of someone because they confess to you a need, then you are the one who needs to repent. But brothers and sisters, let us know that we love each other enough in this congregation that let us confess our needs to one another, that we can pray for one another. Because we want to see people healed. We want to see people walking in victory, walking in the power of the Spirit. And notice what he says here at the end of verse 16. He says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What does he mean by this? The effectual 
prayer of a righteous man. Now, who makes it effective? God is the one who makes it effective. But the prayer of a righteous man. Now, God is not talking about here through, through James. He's not talking about someone who is super spiritual. He's talking about a man who has been justified by Christ. We are righteous not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So he's talking about the prayer of a believer, the prayer of one who loves the Lord and has committed himself to God. He says it's the prayer of a righteous man. Why? Because as unpopular as it is to say today, God does not hear the prayers of the ungodly. Proverbs 15, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. We have access, direct access to God. And as we pray to him, he hears our prayers, whereas he does not hear the prayers of the wicked. He does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous. He hears our prayers. We have that access to him. So how are we to pray? We are to pray earnestly and effectively. Not just plain prayer. Not just lip service. But this type of effectual prayer is a type of prayer, as John Gill put it, a fervent prayer that has power and energy and life in it which is with the spirit and with the understanding, with the heart, even with a true heart and in faith, which is put up with a fervency and not in a cold, lukewarm, lifeless, formal and customary way. We can be tempted, as I said earlier, to pray cheap prayers, but we can also be tempted to pray easy prayers. Prayers that are just almost habitual. Lord, I pray for my family. Pray that you would bless them. Pray that you would bring them to Christ. Lord, I pray that you would watch over, you know, be with our government. You know, help, help the situation in our country. Bring peace to the war-torn areas of the world. But do we really mean it? Is it fervent prayer with power and energy and life, with a true understanding of what God is doing, with a heart that is desiring to actually see those things happen? Do we weep in our prayers? Do we cry out to God saying, God, would you work in this situation? I can remember many times and confessing this morning far fewer times than I wish that it were of being brought to tears in prayer, praying for someone, praying that God would help them in their situation, praying that God would save them and bring them to faith. And that's how it's supposed to be, that we pray prayers that we genuinely believe. When we pray effectively, when we pray effectual prayers, that means that we genuinely believe that God is going to do what he said he would do. And not just praying because we feel like we're supposed to pray about something. Now, the word here that is translated effectual or effective it's translated differently in, in a few different translations. In the Volga, they translated it daily. Uh, so it means like to pray without ceasing. The daily prayer of the righteous man will avail us much. Speaks to the idea that prayer should be a constant part of our lives. That we should always be in, a, in an attitude and a spirit of prayer. That at every moment, we're just a word away 
from the throne. That in every moment, it's just, it's just this immediate idea that we're just right there, that we can go right to the Lord in prayer. Some translations have translated inspired. That means it's the inspired prayer of a righteous man, that God has breathed it into them by his Holy Spirit, and then they breathe it back out to him. And I think that's a beautiful picture to think about because we understand that that's how we pray. We pray by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And so God, by his Spirit, has breathed this prayer into us. And then we open our mouths and we breathe this prayer back out to him. And others have translated it in wrought. That means that it's written on their heart by God. But the Spirit of God indwells in us. And he enables us to pray these passionate, fervent prayers. And why? Because it says that the perfective prayers of a righteous man can accomplish much. That means it can bring healing. It can bring forgiveness. It can bring restoration and encouragement and joy. And we must depend upon this. And that leads us to the last perspective here. And this last perspective is tied in here with this one. Because he says that he can accomplish much. And so now James is going to give us a demonstration as we look at this last one, a praying prayer. We've seen a personal prayer, a public prayer, a private prayer. And now we're going to look at a praying prayer. Look at verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now we know Elijah, great prophet of the Old Testament. And here, James alludes to the idea that he prayed a prayer that it would not rain on the earth for three years and six months, and it did not rain. He prayed, and God answered his prayer. And then after those three years and six months, Elijah prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James's point here is to speak of the idea of these powerful prayers that can avail much. Now, James is not saying here, he's not calling on his Christians that we're to try to control the weather. We're not Kenneth Copeland. We don't believe that we can control what happens in the weather patterns. But really, there's a, there's a broader picture here because this rain coming after a season of drought, again, is this idea of restoration and this idea of fruitfulness which is the whole thing that James has been trying to say. He says, you're walking through a season of discouragement and trial and tribulation. And if you pray, God will give to you the restoration that you need. But he says that Elijah, this great prophet, this man who we look back in the Old Testament, we love to read these stories. He said that he was a man with a nature like ours. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means he was a human just like us. He felt hunger and fear and weakness He knew what the human experience was like. And if God had not taken him on to glory, he would have experienced death at the end of his life. He would have experienced everything there is to know as a human. He experienced jealousy. He experienced fear as he fled from Jezebel's fury. He was charged by Ahab as being a troubler of Israel. He was a righteous man. He was not a perfect man, but he was committed to the Lord in prayer. I love the literal translation of what this says here. When it says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly, it literally means in prayer he prayed. That's why I said that this last one is a praying prayer. 
Because it wasn't that Elijah just prayed, but that in his prayer, he prayed. It wasn't just lip service. It wasn't just something to do because he had to do. But he prayed with powerful engagement. He prayed desperately seeking the Lord. He prayed believing that God would answer his prayers. And he prayed consistently until he saw an answer. When the Lord lays something upon our heart to pray for, far too often we give up way too soon. When we pray, we pray until the Lord gives us an answer. Sometimes the answer is what we prayed for, and sometimes it's not. But it's still an answer to prayer. Sometimes the Lord answers a prayer in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year. Sometimes the Lord waits 20 years or 40 years. Sometimes you may pray for something the entirety of your life and never see the answer come until after you've been dead and gone. But you keep praying. You pray expectantly. You pray with power because just because you don't see the answer in your timetable does not mean that your prayers are not availing much. It does not mean that God is not working. It just means that we're submitting ourselves to the timetable of the Lord and His purposes and ways. As I look around the room this morning, I can see people and situations and circumstances that I can remember praying for on many occasions. Sometimes for a short period of time and sometimes for many years. But the Lord answered the prayers. He answered what we asked him to do. And this is what James is writing us to do. If you're discouraged, if you're tribulated, if you're in tribulation, then pray. Are you cheerful? Then sing praises. Call for the elders of the church that they may pray over you. But brothers and sisters, above all, believe in the power of prayer. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect what God can do through powerful, fervent praying. There's so many testimonies again this morning as I look around the room, so many testimonies in this room of what God has done through the power of prayer. Not because one specific person prayed and they had the power, but because Brothers and sisters in Christ, righteous people, righteous by the blood of Christ, prayed and believed God to do something. Let's believe God together as we pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And Lord, help us. Help us to believe what your word tells us here. Lord, perhaps there's one here this morning who it's hard for them to believe this. The situation that they're walking through seems overwhelming. The trial that they've been in the midst of has gone on. And they seem to have lost the hope that they need. Father, comfort them this morning with your word that they should pray, that they should seek your face, that they should draw near to you. They should come and have the elders of the church pray for them to lift them up before the throne of grace. That they should confess to one another 
and have their brothers and sisters in Christ pray for them. Regardless of how they feel people might think about the situation, Father, give them the strength to do what they need to do. That, Lord, you might work in the midst of their life. Lord, that you might bring them the grace that they need in those circumstances. Father, your word promises that you are a source of help and strength for us in the midst of trial. Help us to stop trusting in our own strength and our own ability. Lord, there's probably some in the room who are on the mountaintop in the moment. They're not praying for deliverance. They're not praying for strength. But Father, help them to sing. Help them and remind them of their dependence upon you and the fact that they're where they are right now because of your goodness and graciousness in their lives. Lord, may we glorify you in the midst of trial with the same amount of passion that we pray to you in the midst of difficulty. Lord, may we not miss the point of James's instruction to us this morning. That we can do nothing without you. And that the connection that you have given us to you is through prayer. We would think it odd to go throughout the day without speaking to our spouse, without speaking to our children. Lord, far too often we're guilty of going throughout the day and not speaking to the very one who made us, the very one who holds us in the palm of his hand. Lord, help us to see our immense need of prayer, not only for us, but for one another, that we may do and be who you've called us to be. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.